0: good morning. There's not a better way to have uh, than to have a baptism on a morning like this. And I want to just say I, I'm grateful for families like the Lees that are raising their kids to follow Jesus in every way they know how. And that's why we need this church community together, isn't it? Because this isn't just one family, it's a church together. And so thank you to those of you who've played a role in Jonathan's life from classes to Uh, connecting point groups to children's ministry, whatever it is, we're grateful this morning to get to celebrate that. And that's why we're involved in this campaign called Meals at Home, It's so that families might engage their kids in conversations, faith-forming conversations that will change lives. We believe that'll happen through these next 120 days and hopefully beyond that as well. In fact, it was fun to watch uh, Facebook and Twitter a little bit this week as you all were sending out uh, pictures of your dinner tables. In fact, we want to encourage you with this hashtag. If you don't know what a hashtag is, then it's a pound sign it's probably not helpful to you. Uh, But anyway, if you're on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, if you would post this hashtag, we'll be able to keep track. And then hopefully week to week have that running before service and after service, some of our photos from the week at meals uh, that we enjoyed together. Uh, just the commitment we're asking of you, if you weren't here last week, we're asking our families, our, our married fam- couples, to, to have uh, meals at least three times a week as a family. For those who are singles, we're asking uh, those of you to have uh, at least one meal a week, and hopefully more, that you're gathering with coworkers or friends or, or family to have I- important conversations around the table. And to those of us a part of Connecting Point Groups, which hopefully more of us will be doing that in the days to come, that at least two times a month we're sharing uh, meals with our Connecting Point Groups. we got a lot more to share about that. Last week I talked about the power of meals around tables, that as families this is an important time for us to get around tables, to put the technology away, and to really focus across the table with the people we love most. But the second key value in this whole series we're trying to communicate that we hope you'll take on is that as Christians, we're called to be people of hospitality. So today I want to talk more about this theme of hospitality, some things I discovered this week as I looked more at it. Um, Here's what I believe as I was looking and thinking this week and praying. I believe that in 21st century America, one of the key values that needs to form us and form our communities is the value of hospitality. There may not be a more important virtue for us to learn, to grow in, than this value when it comes to evangelism as well. And so if we want to see more baptisms like we got to see this morning, I think a lot of those conversations are going to begin when we decide to be people of hospitality in our neighborhoods and in our communities. So I'm excited to share more with you about that idea in just a minute, but let's pray together as we open God's Word this morning. Father, this morning, as we look at uh, one of your stories from long ago, God, a story about hospitality, would you form in us, God, a vision, a, a value for being people of peace, people of warmth in our homes, people who invite strangers into our midst and share meals together? And I pray over these next 120 days, guys, as we, as we commit to this as a family, that we would see life change, that we would see important conversations that are happening. And I pray this morning, God, you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in hearts. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Well, when I say the word hospitality, what is it that comes to mind for you? I don't know about you, but for me as I was thinking about this week, I thought of key people in my life who have invited people into uh, into their homes. In fact, if you were to imagine the number one most hospitable person in your life, I'm just guessing it's someone who had you over to their house at some point. Maybe it's that family member in your house who every Christmas and Thanksgiving, you know where you're going to be because they can do it a lot better than you know how to. We have that in our family, the people we go to. But I'm thinking about in your life, when it comes to hospitality, what comes to mind? But as I began to look into this topic this week, I realized that hospitality is a lot larger than the way we often think about it. See, I tend to think about it as uh, opening our homes to people we know. It's just the simple fact of opening our homes uh, that's important. But hospitality serves a much larger purpose in Scripture and really is is a much more challenging concept than just finding our friends and our family around our tables. So to start into this conversation, I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Keep your finger there. We'll, We'll turn to a couple passages before we get there, but 2 Samuel 9 is where you can bookmark and maybe look into more this week. It's a story about a guy named Mephibosheth. Uh, Mephiba what, you might be saying this morning? It's Mephibosheth is his name. And, and, and this is a story that might not have been taught uh, in your children's Bible stories. I, I don't know if I got taught this story growing up, but I think this is a valuable story for looking into the story and value of hospitality. The story begins, though, before 2 Samuel chapter 9. It begins in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel 8, the people of God decide that they want a king to rule over them. And it's not God's best plan for them because God had been their king. But God grants their requests and the first king over Israel is a guy named Saul. And Saul is not a guy who follows the commands of the Lord. He doesn't do everything God wants him to do. A lot of us can raise our hands and say the same thing, but, but he, it says he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So along the way, over time, God picks a new successor to the throne who will eventually become the new king. And that's King David, probably the most famous king of Israel. But back to Saul. Saul has a son named Jonathan. And of course in most kingdoms, you know, Jonathan probably is going to be king if it goes as planned. But that's not how it works out in this story. And this David, who's the successor of Saul, is actually very good friends with Jonathan. They're best friends. So in 1 Samuel chapter 20, in the midst of all this, see there's this custom, before I go there, there's this custom in in the ancient Near East in this time, that if there was a king that died and a new king came to reign, then often the new king would uh, get rid of, would kill all of those from the previous family of the king before. The thought is, if I'm going to protect my throne, I don't want descendants or or, or ancestors, I don't want people from the previous king's reign to still be alive because they might vie for the throne. But what's strange about this encounter, this story of Saul and David, is Jonathan is best friends with David, the new king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 20, David makes a promise to Jonathan. He's uh, being chased after by Saul. His life is under threat. And he promises Jonathan before they part ways At the end of this time, he shares with them and he says, look, my commitment to you is to show kindness, not just to you, but to your family that comes after you. And he uses a word there uh, that's the word hesed in in, in the Hebrew. Hesed means steadfast love or unfailing kindness. And this is not just an idea that comes up uh, here in Samuel. It, It came up a long time before this. And where it came up early on was when God was describing who he is to Israel. And that passage is in Exodus chapter 34. God's passing before Moses. You know the story about the Ten Commandments and all that? Well, this comes a little later, but Exodus 34. I want to read uh, verses 6 and 7. And he, talking about the Lord, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love. That's the word hesed and faithfulness. Maintaining love, again that's hesed to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. God is describing himself and the way he describes himself is I'm a God of Hesed. I'm a God of steadfast love. My love is unfailing. It continues no matter what. And when Jonathan and David are in this scene, David reaches for a word. And what's the word he reaches for? The same word that God uses to describe his commitment and loyalty and steadfastness to us. This is not just a slight word, a small word. This word has meaning for David when he shares it. So as the story continues on, it brings us to the story of Mephibosheth. Now let me get the family line straight again, okay? You've got Saul who was the first king. His son is Jonathan. Jonathan. And then Jonathan's son is Mephibosheth, okay? So Mephibosheth's got a dad, Saul, uh, a, a, a dad, and then his, his grandfather is Saul, okay? And then you've got David, who's a part of this. Well, Saul and Jonathan both end up dying in the same battle. And so eventually, David becomes king. But before we go there, I want to look at where Scripture brings up the story of Mephibosheth. It's in 2 Samuel, not quite to uh, chapter 9, where we'll get to in a moment, but in 2 Samuel chapter 4. In verse 4. It says 5 on the screen, but it should be verse 4. It says there, this is the first word introduced to Mephibosheth. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. So you got the picture. He's the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul. And both of his father and grandfather both die in the same day in a battle. Now imagine the grief of that. Of being five years old, the age my oldest son is, and having his, his, his father and his grandfather die. But not on top of that, his nurse carries him off in this scene and drops him. And in that moment, he becomes disabled. He becomes lame in both feet. Imagine the grief and the memories about that single day in his life. Some of you have had days like that, haven't you? Some of you have lost multiple family members in a day because of an incident. Or you've had incredible harm. And you can remember back to that day from Mephibosheth. This is the day in his life that changed everything. But here's my question. Why is this nurse carrying him off? Why is she in such a rush in this moment? I think it goes back to that custom I shared earlier. Because if Saul and Jonathan uh, die, then who's the next threat to the throne for David? It's possible that David's going to come and kill Mephibosheth to make sure that he doesn't take over the throne. So not only have you had a dad and a grandfather die, now you know you're going to be on the run for the rest of your life probably, trying to ensure that you're safe. And in the midst of being carried out, the nurse trying to protect him, he ends up becoming disabled in this scene. A difficult moment. Can you imagine the grief For the rest of his life, Mephibosheth figures he's going to be on the run. But unbeknownst to Mephibosheth, David had made a promise to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, Yeah, it's easy for you to say. For Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. For his dad, Jonathan. We'll just go there, right? He's made a promise to Jonathan. And David has other ideas in mind about what he'll do for Mephibosheth. Let's turn to 2 Samuel 9. I'll start reading in verse 1. David asked... Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba at your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Makir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Makir, son of Amiel. In other words, here's David trying to show hospitality to this grand, grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan Mephibosheth. It's an important moment. Here comes Mephibosheth, and let's keep reading to see what his response is at this. Verse 6, when Mephibosheth son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you the kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore uh, restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Now this is an example of hospitality, isn't it? Like, this is a, 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 from the previous reign, he's saying, I want you to be at my table. Not only that, I'm going to offer you back the land that's yours, that came from your father and so forth. This is a great offer from David. But it's interesting Mephibosheth's response in the next verse, verse 8. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? In other words, what's the catch, David? David. Because I'm sure that as he was on his way to David, he had to wonder, should I really go into his house? Because he might just get rid of me in this moment. There had to be a lot of fear leading up to this. Finally, he shows up. And David says, no, I'm not here to kill you. I'm here to provide a place at the table. I'm here to take care of you all the rest of your days. Here is Mephibosheth who's been on the run, not able to even run himself, needing others to carry him. And now David's offering him all this. If I were Mephibosheth, I think my response would be, thank you, and that would be it. But instead he responds with this, well, who am I? And I'm sure I would think the same thing if my life had been struggling in the same way Mephibosheth had. Who am I? Why would you show kindness to me? I think there's a little bit of cynicism in Mephibosheth, don't you? you surely this isn't as good of a request as you offer, David. Kings don't do this to those who follow like this. It sounds too good to be true. Sometimes this is going to happen, especially as we go into this realm and and virtue of hospitality. There are times where you're going to offer hospitality to people, and the only response you're going to get in return is cynicism and questions. Because who really does that kind of thing? Who's that nice? There must be a catch somewhere along the way. Because we grow up in a culture that looks a little different, don't we? We're a little bit hesitant to receive hospitality in that way. Let's keep reading, though, in chapter 10, a chapter I never thought I would preach on, but here we go. You'll get it in a moment. So after this story and David's offer of Hesed uh, to Jonathan, and then he gives Mephibosheth a place at the table, listen to what happens following in, in chapter 10. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanun succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanun, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanun concerning his father. So you got the picture here? You've got the Ammonite's king who's died. These are an enemy people. And David says, let's show our condolences. Let's show our concern. So he sends people as an offer of hospitality in a way, right? An offer of of showing concern and condolences. But this is the response he gets in verse 2 as we follow. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite commander said to Hanun their lord, Do you think David is honoring your father by sending envoys to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you only to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanun seized David's envoys, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments at the buttocks, and sent them away. When David told them about this, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated, I guess so. The king said, stay at Jericho till your beards have grown and then come back. Now what in the world does that have to do with hospitality, Right? Well, the Ammonites are concerned because, right, no one sends this delegation to come and show concern in this moment. And here's an offer of hospitality, genuine hospitality that David is trying to offer to them. But what's the response? Again, it's cynicism. No king of an enemy tribe would do this to us. There's no way. He must be scouting out the land. He's going to come and attack us. I know he is. And so they humiliate them to say the least, right? And I doubt they left the goatee only, right? This is a scene of embarrassment. David, as it was read in verse 5, gives them some time to kind of recover their embarrassment and to get their self-esteem back a bit. But they go back and they end up uh, annihilating the Ammonites for this response. And I think these two chapters, 2 Samuel 9 and 2 Samuel 10 have something to do with each other when you read it in this context. Because in chapter 9, David offers hospitality to Mephibosheth and the response is like, you're not supposed to do this. Maybe Maybe I should be fearful in this moment. He's not so sure. Why do you do this to a dead dog like myself? And then in chapter 10, David is trying to offer this again, condolences, hospitality, offering this remorse for what's happened. And what's the response? Again, a rejection of his offer of support. And like I said earlier, I just think this is the response to a culture, not just back then, but to today when we offer hospitality to people. At times we're going to be rejected in that hospitality. At times, we're going to get this cynical response back. You know why? Well, because you've gotten the same story in your life, probably. Like my friend who went to college, and he got this nice letter in the mail with this plastic card from MasterCard or something like that. And and he started spending up as much as he wanted on that card, thinking this is a great gift from these people in Delaware. And and then he realized he had to pay that back with about 18% on top of it, right? Because what seems like free at first isn't always free. Or or like, uh, you know, the, the email you may have gotten from the widow in Nigeria who said, I just fell into some money, and if you'll give me your bank account information, then I'll make sure and dump some into your account as well. Not everything that's free is really free in the end. Or a couple of weeks ago, I got a call from a woman trying to give me a cruise over the phone. She left a voicemail, and I deleted the voicemail before it even got to the end of it, right? We're cynical about things that are free because what sounds too good to be true probably is. And so we live with people offering hospitality. Sometimes we offer it, and it's met with a response that's not so positive. But this is still the call of the gospel, the call that's in the epistles. And that's where I want to go to a passage that Peter writes. It's in 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter's writing to this congregation, and he's trying to encourage them to do some things, to be a part of this Christian commitment. And what does he say? It's in 1 Peter 4 verse 9. Says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Peter's call to this Christian community is offer hospitality. This is what you're to do. This is what the church is supposed to be a part of. But it was interesting as I looked this week at the background of that word. The word in Greek is actually the word philoxenos. Okay? philoxenos. If we could pull that up on the screen. philoxenos is actually a breakdown of two compound words in the Greek. One is the word phileo which you may have heard kind of like uh, is, is the word for love. It means brotherly love, like Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. So phileo is this same love that David and Jonathan showed to one another. That's this kind of word. And then there's the word xenos, which means stranger or foreigner or even enemy in some sense. So this word hospitality really just means, if you break it down, love of strangers. But there's another word that describes our culture a little better. It's already up there. You're already ahead of me, right? Xenophobia, not philoxenos, xenophobia. What does that mean? Fear of strangers. And we grow up from an early age being taught that, you know, stranger danger, right? You got to stay away from the strangers in your life. And there's a sense in which wisdom plays a role that we teach our kids these things, but sometimes we don't grow up from those realities we're taught. And here's why I believe that hospitality is so key in this era of time right now. Because the world changed at 9-11, didn't it? In so many ways. But one of the most harmful ways it's changed is the way we've come to see outsiders in our midst. We're fearful, aren't we? I remember being in an airport not too long ago, and I remember seeing a a woman in a hijab or a hajib, and I I remember my first thought was kind of a reaction, and I'm, I'm thinking, why am I having this reaction against someone who's trying to live a life of peace as far as I can tell. But we're taught through media, we're taught through all kinds of avenues to fear the foreigner, to fear the stranger and the immigrant who's in our country. And I think the call of the gospel in a time like this is not to listen to culture's fear that we're taught to heed as much as possible. I mean, some of us, let me just say it plainly, we're living lives of fear about these kinds of people. And it's crippling us in ways the gospel's trying to counteract in us. Because those Christians, they lived in a time period where persecution was real as well. They lived in a period of time where death might have been imminent on their doorstep also. But what do you do with passages like 1 Peter 4 and Hebrews 13, this call to hospitality, which is more than just having friends and family over. It's the love of strangers that's the call that Peter gives to us. This was one of the key factors for growth in the early church, the church in the early centuries, despite the persecution, despite living under uh, foreign rule, they lived as people of hospitality and peace in the midst of great threat that they encountered. In fact, uh, Jerome, one of the early church fathers, this is what he had to say about this topic. He said, let poor men and strangers be guests at your table, and with them Christ shall be your guest. Right? This sense of Matthew 25, isn't it? That when we feed those, that it, that's Christ that we're feeding. When we clothe those, it's Christ that we're feeding. A Roman emperor just around this time named Julian, this is what he had to say about Christians at this time. He says, Nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans, talking about Christians, not only for their, uh, provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. This was the reputation of the early church. They were a people who were a minority. They were oppressed and persecuted in many senses. But they were people who continued to offer their gifts, their hospitality, their love to people who were strangers, even people who were set against them. And it set them apart from the rest of the world. Some of you recently have been in hospitals. I want you to think just about that word hospital. Right? I mean, that that comes from the idea of hospitality. It comes from this Greek word, the love of strangers. And if you think about the role that medical uh, people play in hospitals, it's an amazing role, isn't it? Because this is not taking your family member in at the end of their life to care for them. This is caring for strangers. You don't know who's going to walk in your door, but as a nurse or a doctor or a physician, anyone in a hospital who knows might walk in. It doesn't matter who walks in. All that matters is the person who walks in, they're going to get care. And I think that is a, an example of Christian virtue of hospitality. In fact, many of the early hospitals were set up by Christians who believe this is part of our care for the world, is to care for whoever walks through these doors. And I think part of the reason that Dallas was in an uproar when Presby began to invite in people that had Ebola recently Was a xenophobic reaction to Thomas Eric Duncan and others that says, "We're not so sure we want this in our uh, our city." But what's the response of hospitals? The response of hospitals is to take care of the person that's in front of them, no matter who it is. And now we see what that fury really panned out to be. See, if there's a starting point for evangelism in the 21st century in America, it's not going to happen by knocking on doors. I mean, that can work and there can be possibilities, but I got to tell you, I knocked on doors the other day just trying to hand out uh, gifts. Holly and I did. We went around with our kids to our neighborhood just to meet our neighbors with just some candy. And they opened their door just nervous about who's going to be there at the front door in their own neighborhood. I can't imagine if I'd had a tract in my hand what would have happened. But what would it be like instead if our houses became the open door And our tables became the open tables that everyone in our neighborhoods knew. This is always an open place for you, no matter what you need. What if our tables became filled with neighbors, became filled with strangers? What if our tables and our homes became open places? What if we became the church that was known as, hey, you know, Greenville Oaks? They're that church that opens their tables to just anyone. It's ridiculous. Or they'll open their homes to anyone. That, that house in the neighborhood, that's, those are the people you need to go see. Because that chatter happens in neighborhoods, doesn't it? I hear that story just recently from one of our members that talked about a tragedy that was going on in his neighborhood. Next door to him. And as the emergency vehicles surrounded, all of a sudden their house became a home of healing. A, a place where neighbors and friends and family members came to be. And I think about that and I think that's what we need more of in this church, in this city. We need neighborhoods that know that the first place to go are the Christian homes in their area. This is a vision I think that's so big and I think it can do so much for us. It's countercultural because we have news cycles that are focused on everything that divides us. But the role and call of Christians is to celebrate everything that unites us and reconciles us. And tables are places where that happens best. Hospitality is not an option for Jesus' followers. It's actually a command that Peter gives to us that Hebrews talks about. So I want to close this morning by challenging you to think about not just who's going to be around your table in terms of your family like we challenged last week. I want to challenge you to think about who are the strangers in our midst that we need to invite into our homes. And and let me just say, we need to be wise about this. I'm not just suggesting go out and find anyone and, and bring them into the table with your wife and kids without your wife knowing to prepare a meal, right? I mean, let's be wise about this, okay? I'm not, I, we need to be as wise as serpents and as, as gentle as doves. But, but what would it be like for us to think about what it looks like to be followers of Jesus who would open our homes? And these are just some ideas when it comes to hospitality that I want you to think about. A couple of values that come with hospitality. I believe that hospitable people are people who put us at ease. People who put us at ease. You've been into someone's home before, haven't you? where you come into their home and you got your kids with you and you're scared to death your kids are going to touch anything. Because something might break and you're going to hear about it after that. It's not a safe place. But there are other homes that you enter into and you know from the moment you enter into it, this is a safe place, right? like like, There's not going to be any judgment. They're just safe people. Don't you know what I'm talking about? I had a professor during my time at Abilene uh, in school that he invited some students over to the house. And you know what he did when we entered into the doors for the first time before we opened and had our meal and our prayer and all that? He, He dropped a coffee mug on the floor and broke it. I remember thinking, that's the oddest thing ever. But you know what he was trying to say? He was trying to say, there's nothing in this house that can be broken that's more important than the people who enter my doors. So maybe we need to buy some coffee mugs in bulk around here. What do you think? Just drop them as a sign to say to people, look, you are safe in this place. There's nothing in this house that you can cause harm to that's more important than the people I'm sitting across the table from. Maybe you need to do this if you buy, when you buy your next car. Some of you, you know, you've got used cars, and so this is not a problem. But if you buy a new car, just put the first scratch in it before you drive it off the lot. Because then you don't have to worry about the kids who are in your car or, or the people who scratch it and ding your door. I mean, you're the first one who's caused the problem. This is what it means to be people of ease, people of hospitality. Another part of people of hospitality, people of hospitality are people who are difficult to offend. They're people who are difficult to offend. Well, if there's anything that we could value in the Christian community, it might just be learning to be people who are the most difficult people that you can offend some of us, it's so easy. It's just we think the worst almost about people when we hear something. What would it look like for us to be so generous in our interpretations of what people say and the way they act around us that we believe the best of their intentions? We're not offended by them. No, love is learning to be patient and kind and, and not keeping a record of wrongs. I think that's part of what hospitality is, to put people at ease, to be difficult to offend, to receive people warmly into our places. And when you do that, the questions that come when they know you're safe are important questions that are the, the, the payoff of all this. But I want to draw all this back to the gospel, okay? Because we've been in the Old Testament and 2 Samuel. We've looked at 1 Peter, but I want to go back to Jesus. Because when I think about the story of Mephibosheth, I think there's a connection here that's beyond just what that Old Testament story shares with us. Because one day there's going to be a messianic banquet in heaven. There's some of our loved ones are already seated at that table waiting on us. And I can't wait for that day to see my grandmother and my, my, my grandparents. I can't wait to see the lost loved ones that, that are, have been left behind already or they've already gone to leave us behind. But the truth is none of us deserve to be at the table of the Lord. Like Mephibosheth, we're outsiders that have to be invited to the table. And the good news of Jesus Christ is because of his death and his burial and his resurrection, there is a seat at the table for everyone who wants a seat. Now, you can reject the seat. I mean, Here's the deal. Sin doesn't keep you out of heaven. It's rejecting the forgiveness that Jesus has already paid for every sin that's ever been committed or will be committed that's the problem. This table is welcome to everyone. The choice is, are you gonna reject that gift or are you gonna receive that gift? And the good news when you look at the story of Mephibosheth is, yeah, we may be marred and we may have trouble in our life. We may not look perfect when God looks at us. But the truth is, he's saying, I, I've got a seat at the table. I've got a place waiting on you. And to me, that's the best news. And when I see that's who God is, a God of hospitality, love of strangers, then all of a sudden, I wanna do the same thing for others, don't you? To look like Jesus is to look like God, is to reserve a seat for those who don't yet have a seat. So for these next few weeks and months and hopefully beyond that, my prayer for us is that we can become lovers of strangers. Not just the people in our family and our loved ones that are easy to love. No, Jesus had a a challenge beyond that, didn't he? To love those who are strangers in our midst. I'm just imagining what it would be like for our church one day to be described more and more. Some of you have this gift. We've already experienced that. People who've received us into their homes. Just the other, other day, we, we got invited by a member to, to a fish fry, and, and they had some Muslim friends they invited over the table. They're already practicing the love of strangers. And, I, and here I am just getting engaged. and was It was wonderful. What would it be like for us to more and more be a people who invite new people to our tables? I want to challenge you to think about that over these next few weeks. Who might you invite? Maybe it's just a stranger in this gathering. That would be a great place to start. Or maybe there's others who need a seat at our table as well. Let's pray together as we close our time in the word. Father, I thank you so much that you've called us not to be afraid. You've not given us a spirit spirit of fear, God. You've given us a spirit of courage and of power. You've given us eyes to see those who need a seat. Some of us need a seat right now, God. We feel real alone. We don't find this to be a hospitable community. We seem to be excluded at all times. And God, I pray that that would change. And would you, through the experiences of outsidership that we feel, would we see others who are outsiders and invite them to community? God, for those of us who feel so much a part of things, always on the inside, may we look outside, God, to see those who need a seat at our table. Maybe we need to build uh, longer tables, God. Maybe we need to build additions. Because we want to be a people who are known in this community as people of safety, people who are difficult to offend, and people who love people no matter who they are because they're born and, and made in the image of Jesus Christ, made in your image, God. God, would you continue to form us toward this vision? We love you and we thank you so much for Jesus and his example and his life and his death and his resurrection. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. We'll be standing now for our benediction. My benediction comes this morning. This blessing from Hebrews chapter thirteen. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters, and do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. May we love God. May we love people. May we serve others. Go in peace.